We've been to all four corners of Britain in our quest to interview the great and good of entertainment. Comics, actors, writers, politicians, singers, dancers and choreographers. It doesn't matter who they are. They've all given me their own take on the world they live in and have, in their own way, helped to define what makes Britain great. So join me and my assistants as we get another insight into the marvellous and enigmatic world of showbiz here on Beyond the Title. Writer, journalist and author Louis Barth graduated with a politics degree at Lancaster University in 1995 to become one of the country's biggest authorities on British comedy. Developing a repertoire of non-fiction masterpieces surrounding comedy legends including Ken Dodd, Les Dawson and light entertainment as a whole, Bath remains a reliable source of historical insights as the original generation of comedy stars continues to diminish. His new book, Sunshine and Laughter, published by Head Zeus, tells the story of how Eric met Ernie and the close connection which surrounded their careers. I got up with revered comedy historians talk legends, icons and laughter. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Louis Bath. So you've written an extensive body of work surrounding the history of comedy, which we'll get onto in a moment. But first, I just wanted to think more generally about comedy. In your opinion, how significant is your role as an entertainment writer and historian in preserving Britain's cultural heritage? See, I, I see myself as the recording angel, the one who sits with the little pad and the pen, and I get things down. I, I I get other people's stories down, try to make sense of them. And, you know, I'm not, I'm, you know, it, when people buy my books, they're not buying my books. They, they might buy my book because I'd written a good one. They think, oh, well, this guy knows what he's on about. But I'm not the main attraction. The main attraction is the people on the front cover, the Morecambe and Wises, the Ken Dodds, the Les Dawsons. And and the, the, other, the other main attraction is the people who worked with them, the people who knew them. And, you know, for me, it's basically about getting their stories right. Um, you know, a couple of times, you know, Angela, when we did the Morecambe and Wise thing, uh, Angela Rippon said, oh, you've got that slightly wrong, but that's how someone else remembered it. So I, you know, that, I mean, I mean people remember things in different ways. So she was, she was very, very, very good and gracious about it. But, you know, as a journalist, she knows all about how to deal with sources and things like that. But, I wish I could have spoken to her beforehand, but it wasn't possible. Josh had a similar moment with Barry Cryer a little while ago when uh, Josh brought up a question about him being at a Greek restaurant with Ronnie Barker and Barry Cryer was wasn't even aware. He was like, was I? Was I at the restaurant? <laughs> <laughs> I, that, that, I, I, I can tell you that I did once have dinner with Ronnie Barker and I can tell you exactly where it was. It was a restaurant called Mezzo in Soho and it was a launch for um, the book of scripts that he brought out. Hey. Um, but, but, but I, 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 he's, not, he's not here to verify that now. Definitely, definitely happened. The thing is, the thing is that that's another thing. I, th- I think I'm incredibly lucky to because I'm 48 now, and I started doing this sort of stuff about 20 years ago. And there are a lot of the people who were around then who aren't now. And you know, I, I met I met Ronnie Barker. I met Ronnie Corbett. I knew Barry Cryer very well. Um, and I knew all, you know, a lot of the producers who worked with them, uh, these people, Stuart Morris, um, Ernest Maxson, John Ammons. And um, so you know, if, if I was starting now, I wouldn't be able to go to these people. And when I got the, job, when I got, got the call to do the Morecambe and Wise book for my publisher, I thought, mm, what can I bring to it? And I thought, hang on, I knew John and Ernest. And I interviewed them probably more than anyone. 
So I went back to my interview tapes and found that I had stuff that no one else had really used or mentioned. Because, you know, more common wise, you know, how many times can you tell the same story? You know, it, it, there are a lot of books out there. And it's a, it, it's, a, it's a great story. And I thought, am I, am I going to be retreading things? And then I realised, actually, no. I, there are things that I care about that other writers have glanced over rather. Like, for example, Janet Webb. I was fascinated with the whole thing of Janet Webb and I wanted to know more about her. And, you know, in other books, other great books, you know, she gets a paragraph. I thought, no, let's find out as much as we can about Janet Webb. I, 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 I hate writing. I love research. I love finding stuff out. Um, and I love, you know, bolting it all together. But I'm, I'm, basi- I'm basically um, a flat pack writer. the rise of the comedy historian is somewhat of a new phenomenon yet the role of the comedy historian has itself become woven into britain's popular culture with this in mind how have leading historians like yourself graham mccann stuart jeffries robert ross and dick fiddy helped to expand our understanding of the significance of recording the changing face of entertainment well it's it's a great honor to be um bracketed along those people and um Several of the several of them are very good friends. I know, I know Dick and Robert incredibly well, and I, I don't know Graham slightly and respect him hugely. Um, the, the others I know their work, but I haven't haven't met. And um, I think what we do is view everything in terms of the social history of the time and try and contextualize it. I think that comedy doesn't happen in a vacuum. Comedy is in so many ways a response to the time in which it is. I mean, some of it is timeless, but so much of it is of its time and not in that not in that way that we talk about excusing, you know, racism and whatever. Oh, that was a different time. You know, th- there are things that are, were funny in 1950 that would be baffling now. With the context that I have and hopefully supply... Um, I can make the baffling stuff interesting. It's like, it's like doing Shakespeare at school. Do you remember when you did Shakespeare at school and the teacher would say, oh, no, this bit was incredibly funny in 1600. And it was doing nothing now. It, you know, it, it's going a long way for a laugh now. Um, and, I, and I think that, yeah, I think we contextualise things. I think we, we supply the background. And, and I... It's about yeah, it's all about creating an image of what it was like. Yes, yes. Yeah, you've gone quiet. Uh, uh, mm. Ah, right, okay. (laughs) There we go, we're back. Sorry. (laughs) There we go, right. Oh, good. That's better. Yeah. I, I now feel like I'm at a press conference. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the striking things about you is that you graduated from Lancaster University with a degree yes. in politics. Is there any correlation between politics and comedy? No. Uh, well, there is, obviously. You know, there's, there's satire and everything like that. But um, for me, the politics degree... What it did was it, it gave me a grounding in dealing with information. So and it was it was more the framework of what the degree gave me than the subject. And I've, I've applied that sort of academic side of it to um, the research for the books and everything. So, but also, obviously, I, I am a political animal. Anyone who's followed me on Twitter will know precisely where my loyalties lie. And um, it's... Um, but, but but at the same time, 
you know, I think people who follow me on Twitter and see, you know, various broadsides and then they buy the books and they go, oh, he's not he's not ranting here. There's two, you know, there's a place, a time and a place for everything. And, you know, the book, the books are sacrosanct. Again, it comes back to the thing of, you know, I'm not I'm not the main attraction. I'm just the um, I'm just the recording angel. Your 2008 book, Turned Out Nice Again, told the story of light entertainment through the eyes of the people who were instrumental to its success. How significant was Moss Empires to the preservation of variety, which then influenced television entertainment? Moss Empires, I think, took variety from the music halls into the what we call variety. Because music halls were, they started out as originally... Uh, most music halls were started out as pubs and then the landlord he put a bit of entertainment on and then the entertainment would take over and he'd build a hall on the back of the pub and that would be the first theater the first musical and of course the music halls weren't licensed like theaters they were actually licensed under a different law which in uh, which covered brothels and then moss empires professionalized and they turned it into a hybrid of theatre and musical, made that variety. And also they had Frank Matcham building these wonderful empires, these wonderful theatres, these wonderful buildings, which many of which, not enough of them survive, And uh, but the ones that do survive. And the ones that do survive, if you talk to a comedian who's active today, like Al Murray in particular, Al and I have had many conversations about how much Frank Matcham got right. He said, when you play a Frank Matcham theatre, you just know that this was designed by someone who understood performing and how to get across to an audience. He said, you know, however big they are and the palladium is huge, they feel incredibly intimate. You feel like you're just getting straight across. And that's a tribute to the design. And the way Moss Empires was run, uh, it was a case of, you know, getting because you'd work your way up you'd do the number threes the number twos and the moss empires and the stole circuit were the number ones and you'd work your way up through the halls to get onto the number one circuit and um i don't i don't think moss i don't think moss empires preserved variety i think it was a very unromantic um un un um unsentimental view of um everything and when television came in and variety started to dwindle. Moss Empires, sorry, Moss Empires had no compunction in selling off the sites and putting office blocks up instead. So they didn't preserve much. And also, it's very hard to preserve variety. Um, you know, you can film it, you can make records of it, but you can't capture the atmosphere. Can't capture the, it's trapping lightning in a bottle, really. And you, there are so many acts from the variety age who you had to be there. You just had to be there. And, you know, the stuff that survives gives a, a tiny flavor of how amazing they were. Yeah. But, it, but, it, but, it, but it won't give it completely. Um, but, 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 uh, but of course, Moss Empires were unstopped. Like, they were all linked up very closely with the grades. And when television came in, the whole ethos of variety and the whole thing that had been the Moss Empires was carried through into ATV. So it's Val Parnell, Lou Grade and all that. So the same attitude and the same, you know, t Lou Grade built a TV schedule like he was building a variety bill. So I think that preserved variety. I think Lou, I think he's the linchpin. Hey, oh, oh. He and uh, huh? Peter Pritchard was related to Frank Mancher. Frank Matcham. Um, sorry, I was having microphone trouble again, trying to sort it. Um, sorry, could you repeat the question? Sorry, I was... No, no, no. Uh, Josh was just saying uh, Peter Pritchard was uh, related to Frank as well. Ah, was he? Well, I mean, Pete, Pete, Pete Pritchard. Um, 
was connected to all sorts of things in the variety. His, his yeah. grandmother ran a boarding house for um, turns. And, you know, apparently when Peter was a kid, his uh, his grand's basement was full of props from the first 20 years of the 20th century. You know, while, while Bill Hickok and all that coming over from mm-hmm. America and doing, you know, gunfights on the stage. So, you know, Peter was steeped in it, yeah. And he lived at the site where TV Centre was built. Ah, Shepherd's Bush, yes, yeah, yeah. This is, getting, this is getting nerdy, isn't it? <laughs> well, it, it, it it's a risk. You, you, get two, you, get two, you get two massive nerds together and it's, it's going to go. Wrong, it? It's like a battle off, isn't it? No, 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 no. Short turn. No, no, no. We encourage each other to greater heights of nerddom. told Josh that when um, Pete used to have to go to meetings at TV Centre, he'd just say, I'll just pop my car in my bedroom. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, in hindsight, you were somewhat lucky at that time of writing. Many of the protagonists and campaigners within the story were still alive. What effects yeah. did this have on the authenticity of the book? And what was the process for obtaining these interviews? Um, well, the authenticity of the book comes from getting all the different stories and harmonising them, because, you know, as I've said before, people remember things differently and, um, you know, not... And also, you know, people don't set out to mislead, but, you know, they can remember their own... We, we all remember our own stories differently. You know, and, you know, people will say, no, hang on, that was so-and-so. And you go, oh, blimey, it was right. Like, I, you know, when I, was a, when I was a kid, you know, there are things that I remember happening at a certain time. And I go back and check the TV schedules and they couldn't have been at that time. It's impossible. And that's me, myself, remembering it. The, the process of getting the interviews is basically very simple. I, I imagine it's, it's exactly how, how you do it, Josh. You just get in touch and say, hello, um, I'm doing this. Can we speak? And I think what what I found and what you will doubtless have found is it gets easier the better known you are and the more trusted you are. You know, I think people, you know, once, you know, once people do a thing, they'll say, oh, he's all right. Yeah, you, you talk to him, you'll be fine. And, you know, it's, it's because I, I, I think justifiably in a lot of cases, I think people are very suspicious of anyone sniffing around trying to find, why does he want to know this? Why is he asking me this? Who cares about this? And also you get people and they say, well, I'll help you, but I don't know how much I can remember. And then at the end of it, they go, I didn't know I could remember that much. And, you know, they, they're incredibly helpful. It's, um, but yeah. It, it's just a case of, you know, hello, I'm doing this thing. Uh, could you help me, please? And, you know, 99 times out of 100, they'll say, yeah. The celebrated Les Dawson became the subject of your 2012 book, The Trials and Triumphs of Les Dawson. In terms of his route into comedy, he was rather unique in that he didn't come up through what was then the conventional avenues of variety and obviously an inspired spot and on Opportunity Knocks presented the perfect platform. How do you think this helped to influence the rest of his career? I don't... 
I don't know that the, the, the way he came. I, th- I think the way he came up and the fact that it took an incredibly long time for him to become famous mm. um, was what influenced his career. I think it, what, what went up, what, what goes up slowly stays up. And I think that he struggled and nearly gave up several times. Um, he, I think that was what moulded his career as well. Just that that whole attitude of um, the underdog, you know, because he was always, always you know, everything was always wrong. And it, it, I, I think, but I think that spoke to the audience. I think, you know, people, you know, most people have lives where not everything goes right. And I think, you know, the, the night in Hull in 19, you know, he started out as a very conventional entertainer, uh, all teeth and smiles and that. Oh, this is really lovely, Graham. Well, ladies and gentlemen. And then one night in Hull, he got absolutely out of his out of his tree, went on stage and just went, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here on this, in this kipper depot. And he started insulting the audience and he started insulting Hull and they loved it. <laughs> and he did it the following night to make sure it wasn't a fluke and it wasn't and he became the guy who knocked stuff but affectionately I, th- I think a lot of British comedy is affectionate knocking and um, we're allowed to take the mick out of ourselves but no one else and also with Eric and Ernie they took the mick out of each other but they wouldn't let anyone else do it to the other one mm. it, 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 it's no it's a no, I, 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 and with, with with biographies, you feel like you've got the person living with you, or at least I do. And I've got to say that the year I spent living with Les Dawson was really, really happy. I loved having him around. I, I just, I just felt, I just felt good having him there. And you know, Eric and Ernie, I love, I love them too. But I'll be honest, I came out of that one thinking Ernie didn't get the credit he was due. And I came, I came out of that with increased respect for both of them, but I came out of that really loving Ernie. And Doddy, Dod, Doddy was great, and I, I, Doddy's the only one I've written about who I actually met. And um, Dod, Doddy's fascinating because he didn't want anyone to write about him, but he loved reading about comedians. Yeah. He loved biographies of comedians, but he didn't want anybody writing a book about him. There was nothing to hide, nothing sinister. He just wasn't interested in it. And I just thought, <laughs> when, I got, when I got the call to do the book, uh, I'll be honest, um, the last two books have come, the idea has come from the publisher and they said, we want a book on so-and-so. Mm-hmm. I haven't gone to them saying, I must do a book on so-and-so. And um, with Doddy, I thought, is it too soon? I mean, I'd like to, but is it too soon? Because it was a couple of months after he died. And then I thought, well, if I don't, they'll get someone else to do it. And they won't, They might not do it well. So I might as well do it. And also I need the money. So I, and then, it, where was I? Doddy. Uh yeah, he, he he didn't want he didn't want people writing about him, and I was very aware of that. Thinking, hmm, how am I going to approach this and do it in a way that he would have wanted to read if it had been someone else? So I had that in the back of my mind, and I uh, I with Doddy. I mean, you know, apart from, apart from the comedy, there was very very little there. He, you know, he worked, he lived to work. He lived to do, he lived to be Ken Dodd. And he lived for those moments on stage. And everything else was just between performances. Yeah. Um, hey. So, hey. not so, Josh. Hey. Hey. His personal life. Yeah. He didn't like talking about his personal life either, so there wasn't really anything that you could have interviewed or talked to him about really because he didn't like talking about it in the first place. No, and, and and Stephen Griffin, who wrote a good book about him during his lifetime, um, 
found that it was incredibly hard because people wouldn't people were happy to talk but not on the record you know because they didn't want to upset doddy uh which is fair which is fair enough and it, it's why i i've never written a book about a living comedian because you know you can't hit a moving target basically like most comedians there's so many layers to les dawson from his signature piano playing to sissy and ada Yet an unlikely partnership occurred on the ITV sketch show, Says Les, where he starred alongside John Cleese. In your opinion, how significant was this union in bringing the comedy fraternity together? Well, it's an interesting one because Cleese was doing... He, he, it was around the time that he was working on Forty Towers and he wanted to take a step back from Python. And the common denominator in all this is Barry Cryer and also David Nobbs who had written for david frost cleese had worked with david frost and so they all knew each other and that they i think they got cleese in for a, a couple of quickies in says les and les being les and cleese being cleese during the tea breaks they'd sit and talk and suddenly they realized that actually these two blokes really liked each other and got on and they but you know John Cleese, university educated, Les Dawson, very, very instinctive education, very instinctive intelligence. And um, Cleese, very analytical, loved the way Les's brain worked. And Les loved the way Cleese broke everything down and analysed it. And and they, 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 they formed quite a partnership. And then when um, Cleese was taking a step back from Monty Python, they said, do you want to come and do more says Leses? And he went, oh, yeah, great. Yeah, because it was, you know, it was work, but it wasn't the massive workload of doing Python. And it was time, it was time spent with someone he really enjoyed spending time with. And again, back to Barry Pryor. In the 80s, when they used to have the um, television, uh, BBC television light entertainment Christmas parties, they used to be the alternatives up one end and the old guard up the other end. And Barry was the one in the middle, and he got the two ends of the room together and got them into one party. So you'd have, you know, Adrian Edmondson and Paul Daniels at the same party. And suddenly, because Barry knew and liked everyone, he'd get them all mixing. And I, but, I, but I think, you know, the, the thing of old guards and new guards is that new, that you know, the, the enfant terrible become the old guard eventually because now we're in a situation where who's the old guard dawn french jennifer saunders aid edmondson you know they've all been going for 40 years and now they're the comedy the comedy royalty they're you know lenny henry sir lenny henry the fact that he's got a knighthood you know these were the you know the, the alternatives the alternative becomes the mainstream Josh uh, has a theory about that, uh, that first generation that we were just speaking about. Do you think they'll always occupy a place in the comedy landscape just because they were the first ones to do everything? So more versatile performers? Um, which generation are we talking about? The <laughs> Post-modern generation. Okay, yeah. Um, in terms of in terms of writing oh, their own stuff. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry uh, Louis. Uh, post-war, post-war generation. Yeah. What? No. I I think. I think the reason they'll they're the first generation really 
to produce anything that was designed to be seen again and again. It, it, in, in the music hall days, you could tour for 50 years with the same act. Yeah. Television came in and you had to do fresh stuff every time. But because of recording, that stuff would get repeated and would become well-known. And by, you know, the third or fourth time, it's not, it's not like you're laughing at a new joke. It's like you're greeting an old friend, you know, like Andre Previn. Yeah. That's, you know, I, you, I still laugh just as much. But, you know, I, I know exactly. I mean, there's a point to it that you start laughing ahead of the joke because yeah. you know what's coming. Yeah. And you anticipate it. So I think they were the first generation to have anything like posterity out of austerity came posterity there's 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 your slogan but <laughs> um, out of rationing came passion no anyway and um so and i think now but, but my phone's going off how did you get that oh josh wants it oh i'll send it to you i'll send it to you i i i I, I, um i copied it off i I actually copied it off an lp that i've got and i you know yeah I'll, i'll send you the mp3 i promise (laughs) <laughs> and I actually got the I actually got the LP signed by Parky at the um at the Morecambe and Wise thing. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I I, I think also now I think now we have a cycle of nostalgia that we didn't have before, and so twenty years after something happens it becomes good to remember it. The first 10, year, first 10 years after it was happening, you know, it's, it's just something that happened within the last 10 years. And then in that extra sec, that second 10 years, it, it mellows and matures. And then, you know, so when I was a student in the 90s, flared trousers came back. Horrible, horrible things. You know, now you've got... <laughs> Now you've got sort of, oh yeah, granddad, remember year 2000? Oh, Christ, is the year 2000 vintage? You know, I, th- I thought it was last week. And so, but the cycle of nostalgia is such that, so Eric and Ernie didn't, you know, there was a period after Eric died in 84 where Morgan and Wise were hugely fondly remembered, but they weren't on telly all the time every Christmas. You know, between 84 and I think about 93, I don't think there were that many repeats of their shows. And then in that 10 years, 93 to 2003, it became like Morecambe Wise are back at Christmas, you know, because they they put one, I think they put one on, on a Christmas day because they had a a slot to fill. And they thought, oh, well, we'll go in there, you know, late at night, like 11 o'clock or whatever. And we'll go in there that everyone likes. I'm walking wise, shove that in. And it went mad. So they started doing it every year. And then, and then it becomes this, this engine of nostalgia. So, and there is all of this, you know, all of this stuff that can be repeated. And we're starting to see it now, you know, people are getting nostalgic, but absolutely fabulous and all that. So, and in 20 years' time, you know, people will be getting nostalgic about Mrs. Brown's boys. People are going to be getting nostalgic about, you know, Frank Skinner and things like that. You know, it's... so I, I, I think people like looking back. And I think it's, a, it's an indication of why we're in the sort of political state we're in and, you know, with Brexit and everything. People like looking back to a comfy, safe past that, has no uncertainty because it's happened and they try and recreate that in a very uncertain world and it doesn't work because you there there are no certainties there is no safety you've just got to do what do what you can to make now work but you know 
you look back at old TV shows and you get people saying, oh, yeah, well, you can't say that anymore. You can't do that. You couldn't do that now. You can do anything now. You can do all of it now. Whether you should is the question. So I think there's more free. People talk about, oh, free speech and being cancelled and all that. I think there's greater freedom now than there's ever been. You've just got to be able to supply a justification if you're asked for one. You know, you, you can, you know, you can joke about, you can joke about anything. But if someone says, why did you tell that joke? You've got to be able to say, well, I did that joke because blah, 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 yeah. and not say, oh, you're a snowflake. Yeah. Very true. I don't know about you, but I'm equally fascinated by the end of an entertainer's career as I am about their rise. How do you think Dawson's career would have continued had he not died so prematurely? Now, see, the thing is, yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated by that as well. And you see a lot of comedians who rose plateaued and then fell and quite often they were people who couldn't handle fame and didn't tackle it very well at all and annoyed a lot of people while they were famous and then when they were starting to go on the slide nobody was around to help them because they burnt up all their chances les universally loved les was gonna have a career to the to his dying day no matter what i think the great sadness about les is that he was just getting into straight acting. You, you know, he was... He, he did an astonishing thing. Um, La Nonna, which was an Argentinian political play mm-hmm. uh, with Jane Horrocks and Jim Broadbent on television, where he played this Argentinian grandmother. And it's the most... And he, he, it's almost wordless. Mm-hmm. He's, just, he's just making noises. It's, it, 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 but but the, it is a wonderful, wonderful yeah. thing. Um, and he would have done more of that. And also, I think if he'd survived another, I think another 10, 15 years, he'd have been on Have I Got News For You. He'd have done the whole Monk House thing. He'd have had the comeback. He'd have been, they'd have all been crowding round him, the younger generation. His comedy was kind. There was nothing, you know, there was nothing, you know, very, very little racism in it. In fact, almost none. I've, I've watched a lot of stuff and, you, you know, because he's a, a Mancunian comedian of his generation. It's very tempting to sort of lump him in with Bernard Manning, and they couldn't have been further apart. Um, and I th- no, I th- he'd he'd have written books, he'd have done acting, he'd have um, he'd, he'd he'd have done all sorts. He, he I, what I would um, I, I would have hoped he wouldn't do many more game shows. He was brilliant on Blankety Blank, but did you ever see Fast Friends, the one that came after it? Monkhouse could have made that work, but. Les wasn't a game show technician. He was Les. And basically, it was like directing traffic. <laughs> what channel was that on? BBC One. Oh. At 1991. <laughs> oh, yeah, just never heard of that one. I'll see if I can find you one. <laughs> you, you will you will see what I mean. <laughs> uh, Bob Monkhouse is someone who remains extremely significant within the story of British comedy for the way he pushed the art of television light entertainment and helped shape it into what it was to what it was. Sorry, what was his ultimate legacy? Monkhouse's ultimate legacy, I I think I I don't think people realise how important he was until quite late on and i don't think they realized how integral he was not just you look at his comedy but you don't realize how many people he took aside and nurtured now and the reason so much of the reason why all this bob monkhouse archive exists was because he'd record a show at home and keep the tape so that he'd have the tape and if someone said oh we're thinking of booking that victoria wood he go, oh, I've got her new faces. Uh, right. Yeah, she's good. We'll get her. Yeah. So you'd keep this filing system. And it's the reason why Lenny Henry's first TV performance exists. And Sir Lenny at the BAFTA thing when they showed um, the Monkhouse Archive stuff, he said, well, Bob, you know, we were the alternatives. Bob was, you know, the chubby. <laughs> but 
we were friends and we'd see him at BAFTA or whatever. And he'd go, um, saw your show last night, thought it was brilliant. Um, second sketch needed a bit more, mm, a bit less, mm, and he'd give them notes and they go, he was really, it's really annoying because he was always right. But he would, he, he, he was an absolute, he was a student and a professor of comedy. He would just, he loved it. It, it was his life and he um, was just tremendously kind. He, and I, I just think he's a fascinating, fascinating character. I really, I, 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 I think I think in, in a way he might be the most important British comedy figure of the 20th century. Yeah. And I think if we're going to say what's his legacy I'd say it's that BBC Two chat show he did where he interviewed comedians, just comedians, and it ran from 83 to about 87, and he had everyone on it. And there's one edition where he had Les Dawson and Jim Carrey together before Jim Carrey was famous. He had the Americans Americans over before anyone knew about them. Stephen Wright, he, he, he was a catalyst. He was a catalyst. He, you know, him, him, I think between him and Cryer, they touched every aspect of British comedy from, you know, from the start of the 20th century to the end of it. Both very, very important men. Similarly, we, if we're looking at the major icons of modern variety, we have to talk about Bruce Forsyth. It's a difficult oh, yeah. question. Difficult question, but how would you sum up his contribution to the popularity of television entertainment and the phenomenon of the shared TV experience? Well, the the interesting thing about Bruce was he proved that without the right show, you could have all the personality in the world and still have a flop. You know, Bruce's big night when he went to LWT, they went, well, we've got Bruce. And they didn't know what to do with him. And they gave him this sprawling mess of a show. And uh, Paul Smith, who directed a lot of them, and who went on to found Cellador and, um, run, you know, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and all that. And Paul said, it, light entertainment shows, variety shows, you like to have it all blocked out and planned out. He said, directing Bruce's Big Night was like going back to directing news at Westwood with people putting stuff over your shoulders oh this is coming next this is coming next you were directing in, in you know it was like air traffic control rather than directing television um but on his day in the right thing now i think in a variety show there was nobody better put him put bruce that, that was the thing his catchphrase on sunday night at the london palladium i'm in charge he was he he came, you know, came into television very fresh, very new, but he had instant authority. There was no nerves there, which was a curious thing. Very incredibly talented guy, great pianist, um, and a dancer, singer, and he he was funny. He had again gentle knocking. He you know in Generation Game, you know the looks to the side with the camera. Well, you know if someone was mucking up, um, throwing the pot or whatever, he'd look to one side and roll his eyes and get another laugh. Um, so I think he was hugely important, but he needed the right vehicle. But again, back to Monkhouse, there was nobody. Him, it was between him and Monkhouse the, for the best steering of a game show. They knew how to make it work. They knew what was going on. They knew how to orchestrate it. And I, I, th- I think a, a great game show host actually directs the show from the floor and the director just points cameras at it. And you watch, you watch Generation Games and things like that. Bruce is moving people about in vision, getting them on their marks, getting them in the right spots. He knew how it worked. And um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I went, I went to um, the memorial at the Palladium, the one that was televised, and um, the drummer on that in the orchestra, a guy called Neil Wilkinson. He owns uh, a snare drum that used to belong to Kenny Clare, who was a great British session drummer who was in Alan Ainsworth Orchestra and all of them. And um, I, I, I'm friends with Neil. And after the show, I sent him a message. I said, were you using the snare? He went, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And I said, wow. And he said, yeah, I knew that snare had been there before. And it was Shirley Bassey on the show as well. Went, I knew that snare had been on that stage behind Shirley Bassey before. I hadn't. And he said, if that drum could talk, it was the whole history of light entertainment in one drum. And um, it, was just, it was just majestic. It was lovely. And, um, and of course, um, after the uh, show was over, the entire BBC Light Entertainment Department and um, assorted hangers-on, including myself, went over the road and got pissed. <laughs> Josh was just saying that originally um, before he was offered the Generation game game show, Bill Cotton actually wanted Brucey to do a chat show format, but that inevitably went to Parky. So how different would it have all been if it roles were, were reversed, per se? Well, I, I've got to be honest. I think the right decision was made because I, 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 Bruce was good with um get, Bruce was good on the generation game getting stuff out of the punters yeah. who came on but i i can't imagine him actually if you've ever seen Bruce as a guest on park you can get a flavor of what it was like cuz he's never off he he doesn't shut up he doesn't sit and listen and i think that's a big part of what you need for a chat show host and um, i mean the best parky shows were the ones where parky shut up and let the guests interview themselves 2022 had or has already been a devastating year for comedy. The great Barry yeah. Cryer was a great friend of Beyond the Title, and I was fortunate enough to be the recipient of legendary phone calls on many occasions from him. But what is his legacy to British comedy? Oh, what's Barry Cryer's legacy to British comedy? It's um, it's all the it's all the lives that he touched, and he touched every life. You know. I, all of the people who work in comedy have a Barry Cryer story, even if they only met him once. And every story will be what a nice, helpful, kind, funny bloke he was. And it was just, yeah, that that's his legacy. And I and I think he he sort of viewed himself as you know a line man, and you know not you know yeah if, yeah he was again he was like Monkhouse, always a fan, always a student of it. And yeah. never not learning and um you know i you know i you know i'd be standing at the bar with him in simpsons in the strand and um at an oldie lunch or oldie of the year or whatever and we'd be there with our pints and he'd look across and ray galton and alan simpson would be on the other side of the room and i went oh, i was ray and alan he went yeah yeah I, I still can't believe that they're my friends i went what he went they're my heroes and we're friends. And, you know, I went, and I just went, well, I feel the same way about you. <laughs> so it was, you know, it's just, yeah, it was, um, he was never, he, he never stopped being a fan. He never stopped being curious. He never stopped, you know, you will speak to so many younger comedians and he loved being around younger comedians. He loved exchanging jokes. And, you know, the jokes that he would tell um, when in younger comedians' company, 
would um, be absolutely up to the minute. And um, they loved him. He's, you know, there's that, that lovely story about um, him giving Stuart Lee, the skunk eye at Edinburgh, and Stuart walking up to him and saying, is there something wrong? Are you upset with me? And Barry said, well, I'm very upset that you stole my gaping anus of Christ routine. And um, <laughs> which is just a beautiful joke. And it was just, you know, but he'd been, he'd, he'd, the fact that he'd set up, he spent about 15 minutes of ignoring Stuart to set it up. It was, uh, it was, um, yeah, no, no. He, 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 in, in terms of a tangible legacy, the Everett Thames shows. Definitely. Purist. Pure. With, I, I, think every, I think every writer has a performer um, that they are... It, you can be a great writer, but unless the performer's right, it doesn't work necessarily right. So Eddie Braben was lucky. He had... Well, no, the performers who worked with Eddie Braben were lucky. But he had two great collaborations. Eric and Ernie we know about, but before then, he was the head writer for Ken Dodd. And it was like, in both cases, it was two and then three minds thinking the same thought. He got into their minds and wrote the stuff that they would have written if they'd been the sort of people who sat down and wrote stuff down. Um, with Cryer, he was born to work with Everett. And the way they worked and the way they riffed off each other. And, you know, the, the, uh, the BBC shows are great and I love them, but it's the Thames ones where they're basically doing radio on television and uh, Ray Cameron and um, Barry would write a gag. They'd get it up on autocue. Kenny would do it once. The crew would laugh and then they'd move on. There was no attempt to do um, the show as, as a structure. It was just do the gags, do the gags, do the gags and let David Mallet knit it all together and it was rip and read and it was but the fact you know the fact that he could <laughs> the fact that Cryer could um do that everett stuff and work with arthur askey it, 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 you know arthur askey who'd been you know in bandwagon in the war you know it, it, it it's just just that breadth just that just that that spread of comedy and he did it all equally brilliantly in an interview from 2003, Bill Cotton said of Eric Morgan, every so often, someone stands on top of Everest. What do you think he meant by this? I think Bill meant that some people are just untouchable and they reach summits that others would, you know, can't reach. Without, you know, I mean, Everest is littered with bodies of people attempting to climb it. Um, I mean, they're basically used as direction markers now. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. Uh, the, the, the orange anorak, turn left, turn, turn left at the brown cagoule. And, you know, uh, it's, it's a great pub, that. And um, I think, you know, variety and light entertainment are littered with bodies, you know, of people who died on stage. And actually, Morecambe Wise died on stage plenty of times. You know, they, they, you know, they never, you know, when they were younger, they walked off to the sound of their own footsteps, particularly, particularly in Glasgow. But I think, I mean, I, see, the thing is, I wonder if Bill wasn't slightly building his own part up subtly there, because I think Eric stood on the summit of Everest on the shoulders of Eddie Braben and Bill Cotton and John Ammons. I, I think, you know, as great as Eric and Ernie were, they needed that atmosphere at the BBC. That, that you know, they, they were great comedians before that, and they had a lot of success on ITV. But when they went to the BBC in 68, and then Sid and Dick went back to ATV, and then Eddie Braben came in, it all clicked into place, and suddenly the sky was the limit. Um, so... But I, th I, I do, I do think there are a lot of them up there on Everest, and also I think the air is incredibly thin up there, and I think you need to have a certain, you, you need to have the right equipment to survive it. I think you need, you need the perspective, and a lot of people don't; they can't. They get to Everest, and suddenly it's like, <laughs> so to to get to Everest and stay there, that's very few have done that, and. Um, I tend to write about the ones who did.
But I would love to write about the ones who didn't. I've got this fascination with speciality acts and novelty turns and jugglers and trampoline artists. Like There's a guy called Ronaldo the Rebounder, can perform act in height of eight feet. So that's all he needed. He didn't he just need an eight, eight foot ceiling and he was golden. I, 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 you know, ventriloquists and um, Bob the Trey Blackman. The guy who used to sing Mule Train while hitting himself, Mule, mule Train rather, while hitting himself on the head with a tin tray. That's an act, isn't it? Well, you'd, go, you'd pay to go and see that. Do you ever think of an alternative universe where some of the decisions at BBC management didn't happen? For example, one Generation game, and then Jimmy Tarbuck came along and was offered it instead, basically. I I think it would have been a very different show to the one Larry Grayson presented. um, I I don't know. I don't know if you can do this sliding doors stuff with it. I don't. You know, it, um, you know. I think there are all sorts of things that could have happened, and that, you know, there are what ifs about. Oh, why didn't they do so and so? But at the same time, there are you know, there are things. Well, thank God they didn't do so and so. Um, so I, no, I see. I'm I'm very I'm very prosaic. I I like to deal in the tangible and known, mm-hmm. I, I, rather than theorize wildly about what could have happened and what should have happened yeah. but, you know i i have some small what ifs but nothing that would have really changed the course of everything um would les Dawson have been better off with billy marsh as an agent that's about my level <laughs> so looking back at your own career what's your proudest achievement my proudest achievement in my own career. Um, okay, no names, no patriot, but a very, very senior figure in light entertainment. Apparently, when people contact him for an interview, he says, have you read Turned Out Nice Again? If it's not in there, please come back to me, but it's probably in there. 
Can, uh, can Josh give a give a few guesses? Uh, Private, privately, privately, Private, privately. Yeah, fair enough. Off, off the record. Yeah. And um, finally, what's next for Louis Bath? Um, well, I've got big band practice in Ponty Preeth tonight, so I've got a load of drum kit into the car. <laughs> and beyond that um, I've got big band practice in Bristol tomorrow so I'll probably leave the drums in the car uh, that's very smart <laughs> I'm, 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 all, I'm always working on all sorts of things but I don't want to I don't ever want to talk about them until I know I'm going well with them yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure, mate. My pleasure. Lovely to, well, lovely to see you again, Josh, and lovely to meet you. Ian. Thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you liked this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy? Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time.